Welcome to the Don't Knock It podcast, where we address misconceptions about Jesus' character, his church, and his word. By doing this, we hope to encourage you to delight in Christ before dismissing him, to know him before knocking him. I'm your host, Chris Ramirez, and today's episode consists of a sermon on Philippians chapter 4, verses 1 through 9, that I titled Citizens of Heaven. So, a brief note before I let the sermon play. Uh, Philippians is widely known as the joyful letter, which is not surprising because in it, the Apostle Paul outlines how to rejoice in the Lord. It's many Christians' favorite book of the Bible for that reason. Yet what I realized in preparing to preach through this letter is that it has key political undertones, which you'll hear as I go through the passage, but I take the time to mention that because I hope that in the midst of what seems like unending political turmoil over here in the States, you'll be comforted being reminded of your true home, heaven, in the presence of the King. Now, without any further ado, this is Philippians chapter 4, verses 1 through 9, Citizens of Heaven. Uh, So before we go any further, let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for your goodness, for your grace, for your mercy, that you have consistently and constantly revealed yourself to be um, throughout all the age. So we ask, Father, that you go before us, that your spirit empowers us to understand what you have written through the hand of Paul, so that it may minister minister to us in our times of need, in our times of want, in our anxious and... um, and broken-hearted times. We love you. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray, and all of God's people said, amen. amen. All right, so Philippians chapter 4, we're going to be going through the first nine verses. So if you're there already, please follow along. So I'm just going to read the whole passage, and then we're going to get into it. So Philippians chapter 4, starting at verse 1, this is Paul writing to the church in Philippi by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see my joy and crown, in this way stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. I urge Iodia and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. Indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel, together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. The things you have heard and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. That is the word of the Lord. So I want to begin with giving some brief context um, on the circumstances surrounding Paul's writing of the letter because they are incredibly significant to the content of the letter itself. So in Acts 16, we see Paul and his fellow missionaries arrive in the Roman colony of Philippi. The fact that Philippi is a Roman colony is also essential to the contents of the letter, and we'll see, we'll unpack that in this, um, in all of chapter four, actually. Um, So while preaching the gospel in Philippi, they're beaten, imprisoned, 
and through, and through a series of miraculous events, God establishes a community of believers in Philippi by using the faithfulness of Paul and Silas. And so they move on to the next city to continue the ministry, and the story continues through the book of Acts. When we get to Acts 28, which is 10 to 12 years um, after the events in Philippi, Paul is imprisoned again. And while in Roman chains, he writes four letters, Colossians, Philemon, Ephesians, and our letter for tonight, Philippians. The theme of this letter is primarily one of joy. So if you're lacking joy, Paul is in prison, writing in Roman chains, and he is the freest he can be. So if you're lacking joy, I would encourage you to memorize this letter. I, I myself, I'm, I'm about the, uh, up until the first 12 verses, and it is, I just constantly refer back to it, and it is, it is ministered to me in so many ways. So this joy is primarily expressed through thanksgiving. The primary reason for Paul's thanks, or uh, the primary reason for uh, Paul's thanksgiving is the faithful fellowship that he, that he enjoyed with the Philippians. The faithful fellowship that they've had with him during his time as a missionary and prisoner over the span of those 10 to 12 years, from the planting of the church um, in Acts 16 to uh, his imprisonment in Acts 28. So here's what we've seen in, in Paul's letter so far. In chapter one, he describes how he is able to rejoice in his circumstances of suffering. He is able to walk joyfully, joyfully through that suffering by being thankful, always praying, magnifying Christ, whether in his life or his death, enduring for others and encouraging unity. In chapter two, we get this beautiful exhortation to have Christ-like humility beginning with defining humility and then presenting three examples of humility, starting with the utter humiliation of Christ himself. And, in, and then, he prevents, or then he presents two wonderful examples of two faithful brothers, Timothy and, Ep and Epaphroditus. In chapter three, Paul presents a stark contrast between his, pre his previous persecution of the church to his present pursuit of knowing Christ. His desire to know Christ is of supreme value to him. But he doesn't just leave us with desire alone because as we saw last time I was with you all, desire alone gets you nowhere. So the second half of chapter three, which we saw last time, presents us with some practices on how to walk in maturity in order to resemble a citizen of heaven. This heavenly citizenship mentioned at the end of chapter three in verse 20 leads us to our passage this, this evening. Let's take a look at the outline together. So I titled this message, Citizens of Heaven. So in this passage, we will observe four trademarks of a political body of believers so that we may walk as guarded, peaceful witnesses under the rule and dominion of the one true king. Not Caesar, not the current president, not any other form of government or military under our one true king. So the trademark, and I'll explain why I named, the, named these trademarks here in a bit. So trademark number one is joyful unity. As citizens of heaven under the rule of Christ our king, we are to joyfully demonstrate the very unity he died for us to have and to experience, even if it calls for public correction. Trademark number two is protected hearts and minds. 
as citizens of heaven under the rule of our one true king, we are to approach him with everything and worry about nothing for he is our great provider and protector. Trademark number three will be excellent thoughts. As citizens of heaven under the rule and dominion of Christ, our minds are to be dominated by excellent and praiseworthy meditations and thoughts. Trademark number four is cross-centered practices. As citizens of heaven, our daily conduct should be influenced by Christ and him crucified and and in him alone. Now, the reason why I called these trademarks is because a trademark is a symbol or a word that is legally established in order to be used to represent a company or a product. As Christians, we don't reflect a company or a product per se, but we reflect a person. In the Middle East, this idea was, was uh, communicated through bearing an image. So being made in the image of, of your creator, it, you are to reflect that creator yourself. As Christians, we are legally established and bought, not by shareholders or executives, but by the precious blood of the king himself. These four trademarks are meant to reflect the person of Jesus Christ. Now, I just want you to keep that in mind as we go through each of them. So before we begin unpacking the first one, I want to draw attention to one more thing. Why was Paul in prison? We hear about this man in prison for his faith for defending the gospel, but why? Why was he in prison? He's thrown in prison with Silas in Acts 16 and also in Acts 28, but why? Let's quickly look at how the crowds respond to the teaching that Christ is king, not Caesar. In Acts 16, verses 20 through 21, it reads, and when they, they had brought them to the chief magistrates, they said, these men, referring to Paul and Silas, are throwing our city into confusion, being Jews and are proclaiming customs which is not lawful for us to accept or to observe as Romans. And then later in Acts, 6, in Acts 17, verses 6 through 7, when... Um, It reads, when they did not find them, they began dragging Jason and some brethren before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have upset the world have come here also. And Jason has welcomed them and they all act contrary to to the decrees of Caesar saying that there is another king, another King Jesus. This is at the heart of why he was imprisoned. The reason for their persecution was the same then as it is now. And that is the moment we utter the words, Jesus is Lord, is the moment that we receive a target on our backs. The moment we become enemies of the state. The moment our supreme allegiance to Caesar stops. Now it may not be the emperor of, the emperor of Rome at your heels or his, mili- or his army but it may be a parent, an unbelieving parent, an unbelieving friend, a coworker, an employer. So how do we respond? How do we embrace our true and most precious citizenship? We'll start there with point number one. As citizens of heaven, we are to joyfully demonstrate the very unity he died for us to have, even if it calls for public correction. 
Verse one says, therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see my joy and crown in this way, stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. The therefore here, we obviously have to ask ourselves, what is the therefore, therefore? What is he drawing on? What is, what is he drawing attention to? In what way do we stand firm? We saw that last time, we saw that last time I was with you when we finished looking at chapter three, and that was forgetting what lies behind and striving to what's, to what lies ahead. Following the godly, godly examples we have been given, being vigilant of the enemies of the cross, and eagerly awaiting the Savior's return through his re- resurrecting power. That's how, we stand, that's how we stand firm. Paul, therefore, is saying with his, therefore, that this is how you stand firm in the Lord. Peter also writes a similar exhortation in his letter where he says in 1 Peter 1.13, therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the, at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The, emph- the emphasis on the mind is key. And we'll unpack that, unpack that a little more as we continue through our passage tonight. But Paul refers to them as his joy and crown. We also have a similar phrase that we use or that we've heard before. Can anyone think of what it is? My pride and joy. My pride and joy. These are valuable, precious words from a dearly beloved superior who sees them as the fruit of his labor, as his crowning achievement. I've heard that phrase, pride and joy, unfortunately used regarding things, material things, businesses, ever so often a child, which is, which is sad because when that person says that this thing is my pride and joy, it, he's he or she is essentially saying, I have put my entire effort, I have bled, I have sweat, I have teared up putting all of my effort into this one thing. It's always sad to see that that person who says those things also has kids. Yet Paul uses this phrase to refer to people as the priceless reward for his efforts. Paul delighted that those who had been won through his efforts were persevering in the faith. This was his one true delight and is our true delight as pastors and teachers. We delight to see our people faithful. One commentator says, not only does he love his family at a distance, but because of that distance, they are longed for. When he says, Who I'm, whom I long to see, we know that this refers to the deep pain of separation between loved ones. This command to stand firm is interwoven with love, reminding them of how valuable they are to him, which is absolutely necessary considering what he's going to say next. This command serves as a link between the example that Paul has given in his own pursuit to know Christ and the public correction he is about to give for the way to live in union with Christ. Verses two and three. I urge Euodia and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. Indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel together with Clement also and the rest of the fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Do you see what's happening here? 
Paul is publicly rebuking and correcting two women. Let me remind you that these letters were read publicly in church when they received them. Euodia and Syntyche are said to have been prominent women in the church who very well could have had incredible influence within it. They had to have had some sort of influence. Otherwise, I don't think Paul would have wasted a smidge of ink on it. This division was obviously a threat to unity, a threat to the unity within the church. So let's envision that here for a sec. Imagine two prominent women in our own congregation were being selfish, were pursuing their own selfish ambitions, and it was causing division in the church. Things weren't being done. People weren't being ministered to. And then Pastor Dave hears of it and sends a letter while being away on vacation. I would imagine that these two women were sitting at the opposite sides of the room. And the moment he mentioned Euodia and Syntyche live in harmony together, the tension could be literally cut with a knife. This was a public call to reconciliation. This this type of reconciliation is made possible because of the unifying goal of the church. And what is that? The goal is Christ-like humility. This would obviously prompt them to remember what Paul has said in chapter two, as he goes on in this beautiful hymn of how Christ has been humiliated. Jesus was humbled to the point of death and you can't humble yourself to the point of harmony with a fellow sister in the Lord? How could that be? Surely this was, a severely, this was severely embarrassing for, this, for these women and for the entire church because they let it go on for so long. And the beautiful thing about that is that Paul doesn't pick a side. He repeats his command to both women directly when he says, I urge Euodia and I urge Syntyche. Paul wants these two women to have the right attitude toward each other because, or by focusing on their life in union with the Lord. Another commentator puts it like this, the more we enjoy the benefits of our union with Christ, the more we will grow closer to and more deeply loving of his people. Our brothers and sisters in the faith. To be in harmony means to think the same thing, to have the same attitude, to have the same goal and opinion with one focus and one focus alone. Euodia and Syntyche were probably engaged in some sort of power struggle for influence and notoriety. So Paul recognizes that the only way out of such a conflict, such a conflict of selfish ambition is joyful unity. Yet for some reason, Paul didn't think that this reconciliation could be accomplished simply by, seeing, simply by Syntyche and Euodia seeing each other. They needed mediators. They needed other brothers and sisters in the Lord to help them through this mediation. And we see that in verse three. 
In verse 3, he refers to someone who he calls a true companion. But we don't know exactly who this was. It could be Timothy. It could be Epaphroditus. Some scholars even say that it probably was Paul's wife. That, that, that this true companion was to um, not just stay on the sidelines and say, that's their business. I'm going to let them handle it on their own. They can't do that. This division was too severe. So they needed help. That word, true companion, essentially means yoke fellow. A yoke is a device mounted on two oxen to accomplish work in a more efficient way. You've probably heard this, this phrase in, or the, you probably heard this word in the phrase unequally yoked. An unbeliever being married or dating, uh, or a believer being married or dating an unbeliever. The work cannot be done. There's a hindrance. When it's unequal, it makes the work endless and impossible. So, so this division has caused a severe imbalance. So effort needed to be exhibited in order to restore proper fellowship. When Paul asked this person to help, that word is primarily used in the New Testament when referring to the arrest of Peter and Jesus. Why? Why? What, is, what does that show us? We can conclude from, from this use of the word here that the two women have moved so far apart that the only hope for reconciliation is for Paul's companion and the rest of the people to take hold of them and draw them back together again. This is what is needed. So let me ask you this. Are you a threat to the unity in the church? It's not just purposefully dividing yourselves off of minor issues with one another, but it may be you not showing up. Not just physically, but when you're here. Are you taking the time to minister, to encourage, to pray with the people around you? Because I've spoken with enough people here that people are brokenhearted and they need you. Do you see yourself as a threat to the unity of the church? Will you ask for help when you need it? When you have a conflict or a heavy burden, will you ask for prayer? Are you prepared to give help when it's needed? Because boy, is it needed. But don't let this discourage you. In spite of their division, Paul was still absolutely certain about their salvation because he says whose names are in the book of life. How encouraging would that be? He publicly rebukes two women and then refers to them as names written in the book of life. That would be convicting if I've ever felt conviction. What a sobering comfort to these women. And it's a humbling reminder to all of us that in spite of our failures, God will indeed keep his promises. I really appreciate how one commentator put, put the book of life within a Roman context when he says, and I quote, the citizens of a Roman colony of Philippi had their names recorded in a civic register and were obligated to live in harmony and peace with one another. 
The citizens of the colony of heaven in the Roman colony of Philippi who have their names written in the book of life are called by the Lord, not by Caesar, above all powers to live in peace with one another. You're to have peace no matter what. And that word peace has become one of the most precious words to me in the last few months. And I'll explain that at the end. This is absolutely something to rejoice over, which is what Paul leads to next. Verse four, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. This is not simply a cheer up or have a nice day. Paul has experienced the true power of resurrection in the participation of Christ's suffering. Paul was in prison for the cause of Christ and says, no, these are not Caesar's chains. I am to experience a momentary imprisonment for an eternity of freedom an eternity of liberation. Our relationship with the Lord is so central and powerful in our lives that all other factors cannot shake our sense of enthusiasm in the Lord. Nothing should and can hinder you. Most people think that you get joy when you get what you desire. but real joy comes when you realize what you deserve. And that is grace. Reflecting on God's grace should fuel your joy. One particular event of rejoicing absolutely stunned me when I was, reading, when I was doing some reading in, in Acts. We see that in Acts chapter 5. Let's look at it briefly here. Acts chapter five and verse 40 through 42. They took his advice and after calling the apostles in, they flogged them and ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and then release them. So they brought them together, they flogged them and then they released them and, say, and said, stop it. So what do the apostles do? This is what stunned me. So they went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to, shuff, uh, worthy to suffer shame for his name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. I could only imagine them walking away, bloodied, bruised, putting a dislocated shoulder over one another and, and just saying, wow, we have been counted worthy to suffer for him. Can you believe that? Absolutely stunning. Reflecting on the riches accomplished for us in Christ should put a new song on our lips. Help us be like the psalmist, Lord, in Psalm 40, verses one through three, it reads, I waited patiently for the Lord and he inclined to me and heard my cry. He brought me up out of the pit of destruction, out of the miry clay, and he set my feet upon a rock, making my footsteps firm. 
He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and will trust in the Lord. If you're lacking joy, meditate on the Psalms. Because they are, they are, are inspired songs to delight in Christ through. So how are other people to experience this Christian's joy? Our joy in the Lord. Verse five tells us the answer, through gentleness. The NLT translates it as a gentle spirit. And what that means is that let everyone see that you are considerate in all you do. This is how we defend our faith. This is our apologetic. How can people see disdained and, and depressed and anxious Christians and believe that they actually believe that Jesus rose from the dead? How can that be? I know that our joy is not, is not um, determined by our circumstances, but, we, but our response will determine how joyful we really are. How are you responding through depressing and trying times? Are you quitting? Are you surrendering? Are you throwing in the towel? Are you refusing to try to put on this fake smile for the sake of looking good to other people? Christians reveal the, gospel, the gospel's power to transform and reconcile through their relationship with one another. So what was happening to Euodia and Syntyche in the church was destroying this image. This is our apologetic, this gentleness between one another. So what does Paul present as our motivation to have a gentle spirit? That the Lord is near. You are to have a gentle spirit because God is here. There's two ways that this can be interpreted. It can either be the Lord is near, that, that his presence is near us, that he's close, that he's not too far away, or that he's returning soon. And both of those things should motivate us to be gentle, to be joyful, to rejoice in what he has provided to us. The shame of persecution will soon be exchanged for the honor of participating in Christ's victory and glory. That is what it means to know and believe and feel that the Lord is near. So either way you want to interpret that, the point is the same. Whether the Lord is near in presence or near in return. God is near. So act like it. So to recap point number one, as citizens of heaven, we are to joyfully demonstrate the very unity he died for us to have, even if it calls for public correction. If this is too difficult to grasp, if rejoicing seems like a distant wish upon a star, if you say, Chris, I just can't, I can't, I can't. Paul provides us with a crucial starting point in our next point. Trademark number two, 
protected hearts and minds. Verse six, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. What's our first response? It's prayer. Now that may sound like the typical Christian answer, but if you've been walking with the Lord long enough, you know how absolutely essential and powerful that is. Most of the times it's all you have. Let me remind you of what it took to enter into the presence of God. A sacrifice. You couldn't just begin speaking. You needed to bring an unblemished animal and have it be slaughtered on your behalf in order for you to even have an ounce of God's presence. Prayer is one of the most incredible privileges we have as believers, which is why Paul, this is Paul's crucial starting point. It's his crucial starting point to rejoice and to be absent of all anxiety. The answer is grateful prayer. That word anxious means worry or concern about your well-being. I think John Piper wonderfully defines this, uh, defines anxiety as an intense desire for something accompanied by a fear of the consequences of not receiving it. Let me say that again. It's an intense desire for something accompanied by a fear of the consequences of not receiving it. The world has so much to offer regarding how to manage your anxiety, how to cope with it, and how to suppress it, only to fear it rising up again. But Paul here offers a way to completely eliminate it. How radical is that? Do we believe that that's possible? His prohibition prevents all exceptions and excuses. There is nothing, absolutely nothing, that is a proper reason for the continuous stress of worry. It's these types of verses that cause us to come face to face with the God of the Bible and ask, our, and ask him, do I believe you? Are you truly who you say you are? Do I actually believe this? These are harsh words. This is a harsh command. Be anxious for nothing, absolutely nothing. What were some of the things that made the Philippians anxious? We've seen some of these uh, throughout this letter so far. Their opponents and the threats of persecution. We saw this in verse 29 of chap or 28 of chapter 1. They were worried about their beloved messenger, Epaphroditus, who almost died because of a sickness. That's definitely something to be worried about. And then God's provision which he kind of, uh, which he, uh, which Paul um, demonstrates uh, in the second half of Philippians chapter four. What about Paul? What did he have every reason to be anxious about? 
Paul had several reasons to be worried about the Philippians, yet he thanked God for them. What about you? What do you worry about? What consumes your thought life? Behind every anxious thought is the illusion of control. Anxiety and control are two sides of the same coin. When you can't control something, we worry about it. I like how R.C. Sproul uh, Jr. Um, says, comments on this of how much we worry. I've had this worry. Listen to this quote. And I quote, we worry so much that we worry about what we will worry about when we get to heaven. <laughs> Have you guys worried about that? What, what will I be concerned about when I get into heaven? What, who will I see? Will I be young again? Will I be concerned for my unsaved family members still living on earth? Do you realize how much we worry? I love what Charles Spurgeon says about anxious thoughts as well. He says, anxiety does not empty tomorrow of its sorrows. It empties today of its strength. It sounds harsh, believe me. But behind every anxious thought is atheism in seed form. Here's how. Jesus himself addresses this in Matthew 6 in his Sermon on the Mount. So I won't read the whole passage, but I will read the last few verses because I think they're key for us understanding the force behind Paul's words here. Matthew 6, starting at verse 30 says, But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you? You of little faith. Do not worry then, saying, What will we eat, or what will we drink, or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all those things. For your heavenly father knows that you need all these things, but seek first what? His kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. So do not worry about tomorrow for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. To allow your mind to jump into the future's worries is to jump headfirst into Gentile, pagan unbelief. Jesus responds to anxiety and worry with you of little faith. The Gentiles eagerly seek those things. And then draws on this idea of seeking something far better, and that is God's kingdom. An otherworldly reign and rule and way of acting and thinking and living. Jesus equates worry to little faith. And I would assume, according to Jesus, little faith means absolutely nothing to you, especially when he calls you a Gentile. 
impure, pagan, unbelieving. Help us pray. God, help us pray. Things like help our unbelief in times of trouble and need. We need to cry out. And Paul encourages us to do so in, this, in the very same verse. Paul contrasts the nothing within everything. So you have absolutely no rhyme or reason or reasonable, uh, uh, you have no adequate reason to worry, but you have every single reason to pray. He is calling for a full self-disclosure before God to lay it all out with a grateful attitude. What can, what can we gain from doing this? Does God really hear my prayers? What does, what does God not only promise, but secure for those who call upon God with gratitude when anxiety and depression are absolutely crippling? When the tears just keep streaming and you can't stop them, what are we to do? When he keeps you from getting up, Verse seven, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ. Thankful prayer accomplishes two things. The guarding of your heart, which is your affections, your desires, what you care for the most, those things that you are chiefly concerned about and the guarding of your mind, your thought life, your intentions, your thoughts, your daily meditations. All that you love, all that you think, completely guarded. But by not the Roman imperial guard, but the God of heaven. That word guard is a military term, which would have resonated with the Philippians because a lot of them were retired Roman guards. Yet this guarding far surpassed the power of Rome. The effectiveness of God's peace defeats even the best military minds. Those minds of the Roman army, the army guarding the Roman peace could only exert external force. That's all they could do. That's all, that's all any military power could do. But God's peace guards the internal. The hearts and minds of believers in Christ. I love this, this quote um, is, is one of my favorite co- quotes. Um, it's by Corey Ten Boom, where she says, if you look around the world, you'll be distressed. If you look within, you'll be depressed. But if you look to God, you'll be at rest. Do not look to the world because it's only, it's only gonna do so much. How many times do you look at the, at the recent news article or the special on TV and think, oh, there we go. Here we go again. More ungodly behavior. No. 
And when you look within, you'll only find a sinful wretch. It won't help you at all. Do not try to find yourself. Look to Christ, for he is our true and honest and supreme delight. What are we guarded by exactly? God's peace. The very power capable of restoring two parties that were once at odds with each other. This peace is essentially the warrior of God that guards the hearts and minds of those who pray. When Paul says that this peace surpasses or transcends all understanding, he means God's peace is able to produce exceedingly better results than your own planning. So at this point, you may be inclined to ask, does prayer really have this effect on me? Is prayer really this powerful as you say? Reflect. For a brief moment, reflect on your own prayer life. Do you pray often enough to even be able to reflect on it? That deeply? The answer to that, those questions is absolutely, and it accomplishes much more that is even possible to comprehend. So to recap point number two, as citizens of heaven, under the rule of our one true king, we are to approach him with everything and worry about nothing for he is our great provider and protector. Oftentimes our thoughts lead us to humble prayer with thanksgiving. But what type of thoughts? What should be the content of every believer's thought life? What should we be consistently consumed with? And we see that in the next trademark of the Christian, of the heavenly citizen, and that is excellent thoughts. Verse eight reads, finally, brethren, whatever is true, honorable, right, pure, lovely, of good repute, if there's any excellence and if anything worthy, worthy of praise, dwell on these things. This is how we determine what should dominate our every thought. And it's not just some daydreaming type of pondering. It's not this random mantra like, I got to think happy thoughts. I'm sending you happy, good vibes and thoughts. It's nothing like that. It's calculated and intentional. The reason for that is because the word that he uses, he uses the word dwell, which is, in the Greek, it's logizomai. This is, this is what, where we get the word logarithm. It's technical. It's intentional. It's drawn out. It means to take into account, to calculate, to reckon, to consider. These thoughts are based on reality rather than opinion. These virtues are valued in the world as well, aren't they? Unsaved people do love things that are true. They love things that are honorable, right, pure, lovely. Anything that is excellent. 
These virtues very well could have been valued in the Roman colony of Philippi due to the popular philosophy at the time that stemmed from the big three. Plato, Aristotle, and Socrates. But by mentioning them here in the context of guarding, he is redeeming each term. Let's look, I won't spend too much time on each one, but let's look briefly at each one. Things that are true. This is directly tied to God's intervention in our lives. In, in Jesus' prayer to the Father the night before he's crucified, in John 17, 17, he prays, sanctify them in the truth, your word is truth. This means that God intends his very word to be the primary means by which he purifies our minds. Do we meditate on God's word knowing that? Knowing, by, knowing that through meditating on his word and spending time in his word that we are actually being conformed into the image of his son that will only be valuable to you if you have a uh, an accurate picture of the sun. Otherwise, you don't want to be conformed to him. It's of no value to you. But God intends his very word to be the means by which he purifies our minds. We are essentially calmed by divine speech. This is what Jesus does when he calms the storms. He brings order out of chaos. And he does the same in creation. It is chaotic. The waters are chaotic, but the spirit is hovering over the deep, calming everything down, bringing everything into proper formation that glorifies God. This is what the word does to us. Honorable. Things that lift the mind from what is cheap and ordinary. To that, which is what, to that which is noble and good and of moral worth. Things that are right. Things that pertain to certain requirements of justice. This was probably the most virtuous one at the time because, because it's the one that holds society together. We love true and accurate justice. Pure, things that are morally blameless. For Paul, purity in all of life begins in the mind. Things that are lovely, this gives appreciation to aesthetic beauty of good repute. Whatever words, works, or persons are well spoken of by people deserve our careful consideration. And then excellent and anything worthy of praise, these two qualify the six qualities already listed in terms of moral excellence. The question is, are your thoughts consumed with things that can pass this test? Not just your thought life, but your actions. I have to say that Christians are the only ones that don't have freedom of speech. You don't. Why? Because every word will be accounted for. You have no right 
to say whatever you want, to slander whoever you want. You don't have that freedom. That's Caesar's freedom. We have much more freedom in Christ that is worthy of praise. What about your actions? Can your actions pass these tests? And it's not just purposefully engaging in a certain activity. It's deciding to go watch a certain movie. It's deciding to listen to a certain album. It's deciding to hang out with a certain friend. Most of the time, those conversations are not good, are not excellent, are not edifying, are not true, and are not pure. Every single one of your thoughts determines your behavior. If not immediately, if left alone to grow and fester, it will eventually rise up into the public. The battle for the Christian begins in the mind. I love uh, 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 several uh, years ago, um, I, was, I was beginning to gain much more understanding of the Old Testament, of how, of how the, the entire story of the Bible harmonizes together into one story. And something that, that uh, uh, Pastor Josh said to me in that time of, of learning, he said that, do you, he asked me, do you realize that there's no wars in the New, in the New Testament? There aren't any wars. There is persecution, but there aren't any wars. The reason for that is because the war went here. It became a spiritual battle. God doesn't command us to exterminate the Canaanites, but he does call us to kill our flesh. And how do we do that? That happens in the mind. First and foremost, if you notice, if you take all of these words to its supreme logical end, they all point to the Son of God. Who is the supreme truth? Who is worthy of all honor? Who is completely right and just? Who is completely pure? Who is absolutely lovely to gaze upon? who has the greatest reputation, who is of utmost excellence and completely worthy of praise. Paul is calling us to meditate on the person of Jesus daily, constantly through our grateful prayer. Colossians 3.16 says, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Do you cherish the word of God in that way? Romans 12, 2 says, and do not be, be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. For what reason, Paul? So that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good, acceptable, and perfect. You see the emphasis on the mind, on the thought life, and how it determines your behavior, of how it's an apologetic, a defense for your faith in the world, in the foreign colonies. 
So to recap point number three, as citizens of heaven under the rule of Christ, our minds are to be dominated by excellent and praiseworthy thoughts. So in the next verse, Paul concludes this section by pointing to his, to his example, to himself as the example, and then shows us that the most noble and highest standards of the culture are uniquely fulfilled in Christ. Authentic, authentic thoughts turn into authentic actions. Trademark number four, our last point for tonight, cross-centered practices. Verse nine, the things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. That word practice means to exercise, to execute and to accomplish. Paul is the poster child for instruction to practice. This is how he writes most of his letters. You get a few chapters of instruction, of theological reflection on what God has accomplished in Christ. And then the next few chapters, depending on which letter you're in, it's all the practical stuff. And this is what we're leading into. Paul spent time, hey, this is how you rejoice in your suffering. And then in chapter two, he reflects on Christ's humility. And that, that naturally leads us to reflect on our own humility, the practical aspect of it. This here is the challenge to move from just thinking and contemplation to action. Belief turned into behavior. For, for these Philippians and for us who were already being persecuted or definitely felt and saw the threat of it, they didn't need a simple instruction manual. They didn't need a lecture. They needed an example. They needed a mentor. We need to surround ourselves with people who are, are faithfully executing this. Imperfect but steadfast, uncompromising, mature believers. Paul was in chains writing this. As you read any one of Paul's prison letters, I want you to reflect, re reflect on this. Every time you read a verse or something that is, that is harsh, like be anxious for nothing, Remember that he's writing with the weight of a shackle on his hand. Paul presents to his beloved disciples the portrayal of suffering for Christ's sake. And his participation in Christ's sufferings and how they present what is most excellent and praiseworthy. My beloved church, never Never fall into the trap of thinking that simply attending, paying attention and writing notes and listening carefully are enough. That's good. I encourage that. But don't fall into, into the temptation that it's enough. Be aware of James' exhortation where he says, do not deceive yourselves. Be doers of the word, not hearers only. 
it's, it's encompassed with deception. If all you do is hear instruction and do not internalize it and actually act it out, you're deceiving yourself. And then in John 13, 17 also says, if you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. Hebrews 13, seven says, remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you and considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. I'll say it again. I said it last time, but I'll say it again. Do not underestimate the power of an example. When he says that what they have received, it usually refers to receiving a sort of tradition. It also refers to the reception of the inner understanding of the nature and spirit of the moral life of the Christian, which grows out of a contagious power of an example. And in the past, in the past year or so, this example has been Pastor Dave. That man has experienced a lot of pain and a lot of loss in the past few years. And, and watching him grieve it, it did something in me. It fired me up. I was a believer for several years before that, but when I got here and I experienced how, not only how he got through it, but how all of you ministered to him and continue to minister to him and his family, faith became behavior. Faith became visual when he, when he says what they have seen and heard in me, it refers to a personal experience. Paul was not only preaching the gospel, but he also showed it in the way, he also showed the way to live it out. Do I really act like Christ resurrected from the dead? What does that mean? What does that look like? It looks like believing him it looks like belief turning into behavior. If you reflect on the, the, the beautiful resurrection passage in 1 Corinthians, 5, uh, 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, if the resurrection didn't happen, this is a paraphrase, if the resurrection didn't happen, we are the most to be pitied. Why? Why could he say that? Because the, why, why, why do believers why are they pitied if the resurrection is false, if it didn't happen? Because if you believe that the resurrection has happened, you are to tailor your entire life to its truth. And so when, we, when, when it, I thoroughly believe that the resurrection is 100% fact, but if Paul, when Paul's reflecting on it, if, if it's false, we are the most to be pitied because we tailored our entire life to it. So I would ask you, can your life be pitied and shamed if the resurrection didn't happen? Or can you just continue moving along like nothing happened? Our life is to be tailored. Our entire lives are to be tailored around that central fact. I want to call to remembrance something uh, the words that Jesus told Ananias when he, when he told him to receive 
Saul of Tarsus. And Ananias was afraid. In Acts 9, verses 15 through 16, um, the Lord says, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. Paul's life was to be a life of cruciform, formed by the Christ, formed by the cross. And then reflect on what Paul has said earlier in his letter. It's not just Paul. It's the Philippians as well. At the end of chapter one, he says, for to you, it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict, which you saw in me and now here to be in me. It's for the Philippians as well. And guess what? It's for us as well. Our lives are to be formed by the cross because in that and only that we can be formed into his glory. Under his reign and rule. So to recap point number four, our last point for tonight, as citizens of heaven under the rule of the one true king, our daily conduct should be influenced by Christ and him crucified. When believers think about these things and put them into practice, they will enjoy the presence of God, the God of peace. I want to explain a little, I want to use these last minutes that we have together to explain this word peace. This word has been so precious to me in the past couple months. The reason for that is because the Greek word for peace is Irene. Irene. And uh, Carolyn and I decided to name our daughter that. And it stems from Romans 5 verse 1 where he says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This word peace in the Hebrew is shalom, that all things are restored and working in the way that they should be. In the Greek, it was the term that, that demonstrated reconciliation, that demonstrated and communicated two parties that were severely at odds with each other, enemies, enemies that are now restored. So every time I think about the name Irene, every time I reflect on the life that is growing, I am reminded of the precious gift that Jesus gave to us. Not just in the actual life of a daughter, but the life in the person of his son. Colossians 1, 21 through 22 read, and although you were formerly alienated, and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. Uh, last night we had, um, this is the last thing I'll say and then I'll close out. Last night we had our young adult study and um, I had one of um, 
One of, one of them asked me why, why I get so emotional during baptisms or watching baptisms. And I spent a few minutes explaining it, but ultimately it, it causes me to reflect on my own. And I, I want you to reflect on yours and reflect and, and remember what it signifies. And remember that if Christ doesn't or hasn't resurrected, you remain in the water. The means God used to destroy the entire earth, earth in Noah, he uses to identify you as his chosen remnant. How beautiful is that? By simple means of water. Symbolizing such a precious cleansing of our souls and, prepar and, and preparation for us to experience the true presence of God in Christ. As citizens of heaven, we do not bow the knee to Caesar. We do not bow the knee to the worldly principalities, but we bow the knee to Christ because he reigns and he will always reign. And you as a citizen of heaven, not a citizen of Rome, are meant to live in a colony of heaven. Colonies didn't seek to go back to the main country. Philippi didn't seek to go back to Rome. What they intended to do was to immerse that present situation with Roman principles. And we are to do the same here on earth, our foreign land as a colony of heaven to exhibit heavenly principles under the true reigning and sovereign king over all. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we magnify you. We lift your name on high because it is completely worthy of doing so. So help us do that, not just with our lips, but with our lives. As we seek to love you in this present world, this wicked and perverse generation, help us bring down the heavenly principles and, and exemplify the person of Jesus Christ and to be a true trademark of his person because we have been bought with a precious price and that price is his, his unblemished holy blood. So help us internalize these wonderful truths in times of anxiety and depression when those things are crippling us. Help us rely on you above all. We ask all these things in the precious King's name. Amen.
Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of the Don't Knock It podcast, where we encourage you to delight in Christ before dismissing him, to know him before knocking him. If you want to know more about the podcast, you can find us on Instagram. And if you haven't already, please like, share, and subscribe to the podcast or leave a review or a question you'd like for me to unpack on a future episode. Thank you all for listening. I'm your host, Chris Ramirez. Grace and peace, family.